hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for tuning in to the Places Will Go show. Once more, we have a fantastic guest that we can all learn a lot from, uh, from their journey and life story. So uh, good morning and very much uh, welcome to the show, Will Butler-Evans. Great to have you with us, Will. Good morning. So um, I, I, Will is a, a near neighbour in my part of the world, um, but has made an impact on the world, in fact. Uh, so many people will know uh, Will has been at Brompton Bikes for 20 years, 14 years as CEO, um, I think back in the early days, started out working at ICI and DuPont, but uh, joined uh, joined Brompton and moved up for, I think, originally from project manager to engineering director and then to CEO. Good research. Where, Very yeah, There you go. Well, uh, we, we do try. And the, the obviously, the story of Brompton is extremely famous, if not iconic. Uh, indeed, Brompton is probably an iconic symbol of British culture. Uh, I think back in 2008, was chosen to represent London at the closing of the Beijing Olympics. Odds. That yeah. was we were we we ended up sending those bikes over, and it was all hush hush because we weren't a sponsor, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And then, so when the closing ceremony came, we were like, "Yes, it's being used." And then yeah. there's Chris Hoy, and he's wearing four medals, and he's on a bike. <laughs> but the only thing was, he hadn't pumped the back tire quite up enough, so it was looking a little bit flat. But apart from that, that was brilliant. We need to have words with Chris, um, but. Uh... Yeah, well, so the, what can you say about the Brompton bike? It's uh, it's designed to improve city living, and, and my goodness, it has for many, many thousands. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with the, the product, it can be folded in seconds. So when I commute into London, you see many people who have done exactly that. I think the world record is under five seconds to, to do that, but it doesn't take much longer than that for, for the average punter. Yes. 80,000. Well, I've managed about 7.8, not that I'm... 7.8, uh, yeah, work in progress. Your, I'm some nerd who, who spends ages, you know, folding and unfolding my bike yeah. in front of the window. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's this is a whole. I think there's a whole YouTube channel on it. Um, but now, now the Brompton is actually sold in 40, 44 countries around the world, uh, and I particularly noticed the the Wheels for Heroes activity that you, mm-hmm. you did, Will, um, for many NHS staff to help them in those. Yeah, yeah and that's still that's still alive and kicking. So we've still got the bikes are still being used, and that legacy lives on. So it's it's, yeah. it's really cool. Awesome. No, brilliant. And and uh, some of the character of the brand comes through there, maybe as well. It is a fascinating brand. Uh, and we're going to find out a bit more about the person that has led it for the last 14 years. Uh, so what makes Will tick and what everyone can learn from his journey. I did ask um, Christina, who works in Will's business, just for a little quote, just to see what are we what are we in store for? It's what Christina said. Will is an inspiring leader. He's a visionary with buckets of enthusiasm, infectious energy, and a special gift for connecting on a personal level with people from all walks of life. He still knows almost all of the Brompton staff by name and the name of their kids, dogs, partner. And we're now a global team of over 850. He's refreshingly honest in all his interactions and it's just the right level of bonkers to create 
and back seemingly crazy ideas like making a bike with Radiohead or building a factory on stilts in the middle of a floodplain. Those bonkers ideas are the Brompton magic. Well, it's fantastic to have you on the show, and I know it's going to be a cracker. Thank you very much. Well, well I mean, look, I'm super excited about this interview. Well, I've got, to, I've got to tell you a little bit of a story just before we kick in to the first question. So you went to Newcastle University, I and I grew up, I spent my teenage years just uh, near Carlisle. Yep. And what I distinctly remember was a videotape, a VHS tape of, of kind of being put into the, the cassette as we were watching a case study on, on Brompton bikes. And it was literally in my school days that I find out about really? the magic of, yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. Wow. That it was incredible. Is, that is proper early days. It really was. And interestingly, it was about your whole manufacturing sort of way of, of, of doing it and the engineering around it. And then they took you onto the road and showed you how it actually worked and got folded. Wow. Incredible. So actually, I, 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 that, that sounds like a bit of memorabilia I need to get my hands on because I, I don't think, think I've seen it. I think you absolutely do. So, you know, look, it goes back a long way. Um, but we'll, let's go. Let's come, come back to the current day here. Um, how are you doing? What, what's happening in your world at the moment? Well, I mean, it, it's a sort of juxtaposition of phenomenal excitement um, combined with sort of slight fear um, because there are so many exciting things going on in our business. And actually, ironically, out of all this sort of tragedy of COVID, there are some pretty cool things going on in cities. People have really accelerated how they think cities ought to be as a result. So on that level, it's really exciting. But trading in the current environment's a flipping joke. You know, I mean, it's just like, oh, you know, you're sort of trying to make a plan and, and, and you're, you know, you're trying to organize things. And then this goes, oh my word. You know, so you're like, woo. Trying to hold on is pretty tricky. So um, it's, you know, I have, I'm have i on ups and downs at the minute because I have moments of absolute glory and then I have moments of despair. But, I mean, you know, that's just life. And trying to hold on and keep a business more or less heading in the right direction is, is not entirely straightforward. Yeah, when you, when you were answering that question, well, you were, your body was doing the motions of a roller coaster, actually. I don't yeah. know if that was deliberate, but uh, that's the sort of experience I got. Um, it's like being like in a virtual reality goggles there. I mean, it's, it takes a lot to lead a business through a roller coaster moment. So, um, I mean, t- tell us a little bit about h- how that plays out. How, how do you find the energy and uh, clarity to, to lead through that? The funny thing is, um, I mean, it, it, it isn't, there are people doing jobs in our business who, you know, are far more skilled than me, far more dedicated, and really do a pretty amazing job. Um, this job, and, and, and it's, it's worth realising, when I started at Brompton, I was making bikes. So I've had many different jobs at Brompton. It might be that the title is the same, but the job has changed as the business has got bigger and my role has changed. So I was very hands-on. We were a tiny team. When somebody was ill, I was on the shop floor making bikes and it's grown and grown. And I've had to stop doing things that I love doing because it's no longer allowed to do it. It's not my job and so on and so forth. But I mean, where I am now, I think the most important thing is not to take it too seriously. That's, that's the really important lesson because what happens is once you start taking it too seriously, it gets into you, it, it digs into you. And actually we're making bikes, you know, 
there are some really tragic things going on in the world and we're facing it over in Ukraine. And you've got to put things into perspective. And if this business is addictive, it's so exciting what we're trying to do. And I love it. But you, if you take it too seriously, combined with that, it'll drag you down. I mean, it'll literally suck you up because you'll be so obsessed by it. You won't be able to think of anything else. You'll stop seeing your friends. You'll be boring at home with the family. And, and with my staff, a lot of the time, certainly during COVID, when people were stuck in their rooms, being a bit isolated, fearful of, of, of something they didn't understand, having a bit of humour, not taking it too seriously, was really important to help the team get through. You know, well, this is like super refreshing because you're the CEO of this mammoth organization and you're then talking about the, the need to kind of be a little bit more calm, a little bit more relaxed and actually have a broader perspective. Now, I'll tell you why I say it's refreshing, only because we've interviewed a number of CEOs and you know what they tell us? We work all the time, 24-7. Oh, that's on. the disaster. That's the disaster. Because if you do that, it's a bit like, you know, you. I see my role to be imperfect, to not work 24-7, to have a crisis at home, to look after the kids, to I can't be asked, to and all, everything in between. Because if you make out as the leader, you're some perfect, unbelievable human being that works all that, then everybody else feels they have to be the same. And then they can't tell you the truth because they have to be perfect. Oh, they have to be in at seven. They have to live, you know, and everything. They, and they never make mistakes because they're perfect. And then, in my humble opinion, you don't have honest debate. You don't, people are afraid to tell you what, what they can see because no one's allowed to be anything but perfect. I am so not perfect that people can be honest and we can talk about things. And we don't need, I don't need to encourage people to do more hours. They already do too many. I have to shove them out of the factory because we believe in what we're doing. So I, I have to say, come on, chill out, get, get a life, you know, go and hang out with your mates because this business is addictive. And, and so that's not a problem. And, and, it, and it is one of the important things. We've got a life to live. We're here for a short period of time. Work is terribly important, but it's one bit of, of what we should be doing. As Richie said, that is extremely refreshing to hear. Because um, I think there's an addictive, there's an addictive streak in human beings, uh, and many struggle to switch off. But there's there's imperfect, and then there's bonkers. So Christina mentioned bonkers. So I mean, yeah. do, you, do you agree? Do you disagree? How, what does bonkers mean to you? I definitely agree with bonkers. I I, I really think it's very sweet what uh, Christina wrote because I didn't see it, no idea what she was going to write. So that was news to me when you read it out. And the bonkers bit is. It's, a, it's an extension of the same thing. Um, life is for living. We spend more time at work than with our family. We've got to have fun. And, and what um, isn't my way of doing things, I take my job very, very seriously. But that doesn't mean I need to be serious. And sometimes people can't understand that. And they think that, you know, if you're a leader and if you're serious, you have to be serious. I'm not serious at all. I, I, I have a lot of fun, a lot of banter. I worked for DuPont and they, and they had a saying and they said, horseplay will be frowned upon. I was like, what? What sort of awful organisation says horseplay will be frowned upon? I want more horseplay. I want more banter. I want to have fun at work. And that's difficult because if you want to encourage banter and humour and to be tactile and normal at work, that's dangerous. 
because you might offend somebody. Oh, can we do that? And, you know, most companies decide anything that's dangerous, don't do it. You know, you're not allowed to have banter because you might offend somebody. You're not allowed to be tactile because you might offend somebody. You can't do this, you might offend somebody. So let's do nothing. Let's become gray, one-dimensional, boring human beings. When I see my friends, I give them a hug. When I see my best friends, I abuse them for most of the evening. When I see somebody I don't like and I don't know, I don't touch them and I don't abuse them because I'm being polite. But that's not what we are. But it's difficult to do that. So you have to train your staff. We've got staff from over 50 countries. And people's perspectives are different from where they've come from. So banter is really important, but it needs to be done with care. And you need to understand who you're talking to and what's acceptable. And we, for example, we try and say in our organization that, you know, one, we try and explain to people how and what is appropriate. But also we say, if somebody does upset you, be sensitive to the fact that they might not have done it deliberately. They might have done it completely with an open heart, and but don't understand your perspective. So explain it to them. Don't, don't sort of decide this is the worst thing that's ever happened and I've, I've been completely and utterly ruined by this abuse. Uh, if somebody's doing it deliberately, that's an entirely different thing, but they can do it excellently. So to, to, I just see too many businesses that become boring, one-dimensional, not human organisations. And we will fight hard for that not to be the case in ours. And if that means I have to be a bit bonkers to remind everybody not to take life too seriously, then bring it on. Amazing. Do you know, it's, um, it sounds like such a unique culture and a cultural experience and, and what you're trying to bring together. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'd love to come on to that in, in, a, in a minute or two. But I, I want to pick up on a term that you used, which was that your business is entirely addictive. I love that, by the way. And I'm, I'll tell you, most businesses would envy that any CEO could even say that, right? I mean, the cultural issues that, that businesses face is enormous. And yours is actually quite polar opposite. You can't get people out the door, um, which is great. So I just want to maybe get a sense from you as to how you've been able to, to bring that together, to create that addictiveness, which I want to just clarify, I see in a positive sense as opposed to a negative one. So... I mean, it's, we're lucky the business is privately owned. So it's owned by the inventor, Andrew, me, his friends, my friends, and our staff. Our staff now own about 20%. The aim of the business is to change how people live in cities. It's not to buy big yachts for the CEO. It's not to, you know, make sure all the shareholders have got ginormous dividends. The aim is to change how people live in cities, to bring a bit of happiness and freedom to cities. And we measure that by the impact we have on society. And that genuinely is the aim. You can't deliver that if you don't make a profit. And you need shareholders because they help you with capital and support you on the way. But they're not the principal aim of the business. So if that's the aim of the business, which it is, the only way you're going to succeed if your customer thinks what you're doing is any good, because they're the people who are going to pay you. Without those, you're buggered. So, and in my humble opinion, you're not going to have a happy customer if your staff are not enjoying their job. They just You just can't do it. The product won't be cared for. The customer service will be naffed off, bored, tired, waiting to go home. So... It's a team effort. It's like, guys, this is our business. 
if we if we look after it, we can have a great job. We can have a really good career at every level in the organization, whatever your role is, you you, you have to contribute. And, and that role can be rewarding. We have cleaners who are contractors, but we pay them the London living wage. And they are the most well-paid cleaners in the entire agency of the agency that we use. So guess what? The people who clean for us love cleaning for us because they know they're getting paid more and they love working for Brompton. And so they're coming to work with a skip in their step. And if you can apply that, and it may not be in the short term, the, um, the most sort of cost efficient bottom line approach, but in the medium to long term, it creates a, an environment where people are trying their blooming best. And that's all you can ask for. And so, and I'm the same. I, I mean, you know, I try my best. I'm far from perfect. In fact, I'm consistently screwing up. But I bloody try my best. And if we, that's what I ask for. And if we have people who come into our organization in our HR philosophy, we have, it's, we have something that says Brompton does not employ egos. And because they don't fit with us, we're more the humble underdog trying their best than the swaggering person who thinks they're the bee's knees and aren't you lucky to have me and your team? Because we're a team and egos don't really work with teams. So it's, it's something along those lines. I don't quite know. It's, uh, this sounds like alchemy. Uh, <clears throat> one very important thing you said, this is our business. Easy to say, but it's meant 20% of, of the business is owned by staff. I mean, that really shows that it is mutual and, and a win-win. That's extremely, extremely impressive um, and relatively unique as far as I'm aware anyway. Um, but let's take a little bit of a detour and, and sort of go back in time. And I'm interested to know what, what are the things that you think have, have shaped you towards the the person and the leader you are now, if you can go back through time? Well, I was fairly ineffective at uh, through school. I mean, from an academic perspective, um, I was p- having plenty of fun. And I, again, I tried hard, but I tried hard and still managed to fail. So I've never, certainly when I was at school, I, I, I worked hard. I saw people working much less hard than me, getting much better results, and it was bloody annoying. And I worked hard and still didn't do that well. And um, when I went to school, I went to to rugby school, um, and there were classes LMA, B, C, D, E, and F. And I found myself in LMF, which I was reminded for the first three years was for the thick people. so those things, I mean, it's not like we all have to beat ourselves up as children to be able to be successful, because I'm not sure that's true either. But certainly had, um, I had something to prove. I got a, a grant, went traveling <clears throat> for a year between school and uni, got myself into a lot of trouble in the Amazon, wrote letters to my parents thinking I was never going to come back. Um, because things went really quite pear-shaped. I was in there for quite a long time. And um, that was interesting because I did actually think I was going to cop it and wasn't ever going to come out. And so I reflected on what things were important to me. This is age 19, thinking that I wasn't going to get out. And, um, And funny enough, it wasn't the trendy parties and the trendy clothes and the trying to be in with the trendy friends, which is sort of slightly in your field of vision at that age. 
it was sort of watching neighbours with baked beans on toast with mum, with a dog sitting on a rather crappy sofa. It was just really, you know, or, 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 or car journey with dad or these simple things suddenly became important to me. And I don't know, I, 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 um, I think those early years, I mean, I went on and worked hard at uni and got a first, which I was so proud of having failed sort of up until that point. And um, I am ambitious, but it's this bit is this not taking life too seriously, I suppose, those two things. And, and I don't know, that's sort of where I am. You know, well, it reminds me of a quote that I recently heard from Stephen Bartlett. And he says that success is 5% brains and 95% consistency. And, you know, I think it's, it's your approach to life, which I think has led to success. Not to say there's no brains, of course. I'm simply saying that it's that approach that you take that, that, that really is resonating. Um, I mean, I'd love to just, and, and maybe a bit tangentially, but I'd love just to get a sense of, you know, we heard earlier that you remember everybody's name. And by the way, beyond that... You know, that is a mild exaggeration by yeah. Christina. I probably topped out when we were passing somewhere between 350 and 400 staff. Uh, at 8.50, I, I can't keep everybody's name in my brain. So I, I do know somebody's name and then I'll forget it and then I'll pick up some new names and their names in there somewhere, but I did know it and then I'll have to quickly remember it again. But, it, 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 you know, it, it's a sort of conveyor belt. But I'm not bad. But it, but it, what I, I I guess the point is that it feels like that that's important to you. Very. And I just want to dig into that, that a little bit, because I think there's a lot of underlying things that go on as a consequence of that thinking. Well, I was I had a mentor, funnily enough, talking to you guys. I, my first job was at ICI and I was on the monitored professional development scheme, which was pretty awesome when you went into a big company and were given that level of experience, exposure, and support. And Andy Teague, um, and I would love if he was listening to this, um, was my mentor, effectively. And I used to see him once a quarter. And um, I was involved in project management initially, and we used to um, break, repair these chemical factories every 18 months. It'd be two weeks, 24 hours a day, full on, and you'd prepare for 18 months, and on, on you, we'd go into this thing. <clears throat> And I had lots of contractors working for me. And I said to him one time, I said, I said, well, Andy, I'm a bit worried. I think I might be drinking too much tea. Um, because these lads would come on, you know, I'd be doing a night shift for two weeks and I'd be there with cups of tea. Come on, lads, let's get this sorted. You know, and, and then as soon as I finished one gang, I'll be off, it'd be another cup of tea. Right, come on. You know, <laughs> I was drinking so much flipping tea. He said, Will, you know, that is your job. Your job is not to do the work. Your job is to get the work done. And you need to listen. You need to inspire. You need to take time and never think that sitting and having a cup of tea with your staff is wasting your time because it's some of the most valuable time you can spend. So I spend a lot of my time wandering around the factory in a random way. And I'll just pick up on somebody, chat to them, learn a little bit about them, Take time to listen, and it's not, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to measure, but it's terribly important. And when when you get up in an organisation, oh, we've got this meeting, and then you've got, of course, you've got to, you know, you've got to 
an, an executive assistant who's organizing everything, you've got to go straight from this, this meeting, this meeting, this meeting, and I need time to just potter about and sort of, you know, learn about my staff. Um, we'll make sure Andy T gets it. Because uh, um, obviously a big part of the School of Marketing is to mentor young marketers in their career. Um, so for anybody listening, again, shout out if you or your team would benefit from some free mentoring from some of the best marketers around the world, uh, the offer is, of course, there. Um, but uh, you no, know, great, great to hear that. I mean, let's just fast forward to today. Now, you, you're in the top job. What, what role does mentoring play? Is that now a thing of the past? Or are you still actively mentored in a manner of speaking? Or indeed mentor others? So um, we, we, we have an interesting ownership structure, which I talked about earlier. And um, we've been really fortunate to do something which is pretty unique, which is every year we have something called, called the annual shuffle. So the share ownership is private, but some of those shareholders were friends of Andrew's, the inventors, from university and from early days. They're getting on a bit and their commitment and support of Andrew in those very early days were instrumental. Without it, the business wouldn't exist. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, they've done pretty bloody well. And, but they love being part of the company, but also they're getting old and they, they're not, they haven't got as much money as they used to have. So they will sell some of their shares. As it happens, a lot of their shares, they passed on to their children, in some cases, grandchildren. So every year, some shares are sold. And actually, some shares are sold by our staff because they have options and they need to sell shares to get the money to buy the to exercise the options. So every year we've sold a few shares. So there's an opportunity to bring in new shareholders. And what I've done is very selfishly, I've met some very interesting people in my career, and I've invited quite a few of those over the years to become shareholders because I know they can be mentors. And then I don't have to pay them anything. And also, once they become a shareholder, I can meet them up for dinner and bore them senseless about Brompton. And because they're a shareholder, they'll put up with it. And it's been brilliant. And I've, as a result, I have got, um, I don't know whether I'm meant to say who my shareholder, the problem with shareholder register, but I've got like ex-CEO of Google, ex-CEO of Warner Brothers, a really interesting bunch of shareholders who've, You've helped me on my way. And then even my friends, you know, we've all got a great network of friends. You know, I bore them senseless about Brompton. Before we were talking today, I was chatting to one of my oldest friends who ran me early this morning randomly. But, you know, we talk about things and he's got his perspective and you, you need to reach out and bounce your ideas about outside of your organisation. Because if you're just, particularly when you're the CEO, people want to keep, to tell you what you want to hear. I mean, I'm permanently trying to tell people not to do that, but they can't help it. So you need to go outside of your sphere and particularly to your good friends who tell you, Will, that's a stupid idea. Well, how on earth did you come up with that? You know, well, I, I, I love that thinking and, you know, constantly trying to kind of fit into the ether and the external environment and then kind of marry back into your world. And as you say, bore people senseless over dinner, trying to kind of culminate that, that combination. But let me ask you, right, how do you represent the views of young people in your business today? I think that's a good question. 
um, the, 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 probably the best way is to have a fairly dynamic and young organization, I suppose. And maybe there's, there's a point at which that the organization grows old because, you know, I'm growing old and I became CEO at 34. So, you know, I'm no longer 34. So, I mean, at the minute, I sort of spend time chatting to my team. The organization is pretty young. We do lots of, well, we're starting to do lots more activities because COVID pretty much put that on the Bosch. Um, and there, there's a sort of, I don't know, we don't have a formal scheme, but anyone can ask anything, anybody, anything at any time. And there isn't some hierarchical top-down, I know best. I mean, our philosophy is that the reason you employ somebody is because you're looking skills and experience and perspective that you don't have. So if you're doing that to employ somebody, you can't then tell them what to do because you've employed them because they've got skills, perspective and experience you don't have. So what you need to do is tell them what you want to achieve and then let them tell you how to go about it. That way you allow them to bring their ideas, their perspective and their insight into how you run the business. If all you do is top down, the business will never evolve. It'll just be the same because the same old buggers are telling you to do it the same old way. And you're not allowing this new ideas. And the other thing is we have a, and it's hard to describe because the world is in such a weird place at the moment, but I mean, historically we paid our shop floor staff more than average and we paid our office staff less. And that is the same today. Um, that's unusual. Normally people try and take advantage the other way. But our, the people who are in our, um, in our uh, sort of desk work, in the management of the business, they tend to be on a career path. You know, they've come from university and they're doing this, that and the other and they're on to their next job. The reason we pay them a bit less than average is because we want them to come to us because they want to work for Brompton. It's not just about the money. Whereas the guys on the shop floor, they're our brand. You know, they are there. We want very little staff turnover. It's a job for life. We want them. They're highly skilled. It'll take us for a brazer three years to become a master brazer. And they've got to bring up a family. They've got to live in London. They've got to feel so proud that they work for our business. And actually, we don't want turnover on the shop floor. But funnily enough, in our management team, we do want turnover. Because we want new people, fresh ideas, young people to come in. So we want a percentage of our staff to join us, be with us for three or four years and move on. Go on to the next job, making room for another load of young talent to come in with different ideas and different perspectives. So it's not formal, but I hope and believe it's there. Nice, nice dynamic. I'm getting a balance of stability, but freshness. Um, Obviously, School of Marketing, clues in the title, we're very interested in the world of marketing. I'm interested to get your perspectives on marketing at Brompton. You've done a documentary, you've done some amazing PR, yeah. some amazing activities. Where, where does marketing fit in the model? So I am completely and utterly anti-marketing. I just think marketing as a word, it just, it, it, it feels awful to me. I can't bear it because in my experience, we're bombarded with complete and utter guff all day long, cluttering guff, over-promised rubbish, day in, day out. And it bores the pants out of me. 
Now, communication, awareness, yes. If people don't know the Brompton exists, how can they consider it for their life? It might be just the very thing they're looking for, but they don't even know we exist. So we need to let people know. We need to get our message out. But I believe the sector, 90% of what I see, I mean, you know, makeup adverts, it's just overrated, just untruths. And half the stuff you're sold, they're promising the moon and it's not true. And so for me, the message we have is honesty, modesty. You know, don't overpromise. Don't send people tons of stuff they really can't be bothered with. It's annoying. But the whole industry, I mean, I'm an engineer, so take this with a pinch of salt. But I just, every time I open the magazine, every time I go on, I'm just bombarded with stuff that it's just too much. And I think if you can, if you can be honest and in some respect under promise your product, which is very refreshing, it's so delightful as a consumer when you buy something with the expectation here, but it delivers here. Because you're like, oh my God, this thing's amazing. I bought it because I needed it for this. But you won't believe it. I can use it for this. I've done this. Oh, you know, and I've had it 15 years and I flipping love it. I can still get spare parts and it still works. You're going to tell all your friends. Now that is clever because the people who sell our product are our customers, not us. And I've had marketeers come in including dear Stephen, who's with us at the moment. And he's busy telling me, yes, but every other company spends 5% on their marketing. We need to spend 5% our budget on our marketing. I said, well, if we're doing the same, spending the same as every other company, we're not being very clever, are we? We should be able to deliver twice the message at half the cost because we're clever, we're smart, and, 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 and we're leveraging our brand and we're using our customers rather than saying, well, everyone else spends 7%, let's be 7%, we're not, you know, no, no, no. Don't try and do the same as everyone else, try to do it differently. You know, well, that's, it's really interesting. And, and by the way, I, I don't disagree with your perspective around a lot of the marketing aspects that we see today. And I do love the thought about humble, honesty, and even under-promising to then over-deliver. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And, and I think these are principles that as an industry, we need to evolve into. So, you know, hand on heart, I... I I cherish the perspective. Um, but what I would actually add to that, right, and perhaps we're not giving enough heed to, and, and at the, I think at the core of your, of your organization is what you just said before, where you said, actually, we pride our people on the ground to be the guys to live and breathe our brand every day, to be the guys to deliver to our customers. And I think those guys are your brand. Those guys are your marketers. Right. And I think that's, and, and by the way, I've always, it's funny, I started my career, the orange shop on the, on the ground, like selling mobile phones. And it baffled me as to why we were paid minimum wage when people sitting in an office where we were interacting with 100 customers a day. Why were we on the least amount of money versus other people who never even interact with the customer? I couldn't, I couldn't for the life of me fathom it. I was like, how is this even possible? But that's still the case. It's still, and it, it, it's, it's, it is, um, it's a weird world we live in. And just because everyone else does it, you don't need to do it. And we're far from perfect as a company, as an organization, and we haven't got it right. And some of our communication isn't where it ought to be. And you know, there's so much room for improvement, but the principle of um, really understanding where um, your brand sits, 
and your brand sits, in our case, with the people who make the product, because we have an incredible facility, it's extremely well run, but they're human beings. And you can have all the procedures and all of the no-go gauges, but ultimately the person who's engaging with that product has, has, has an opportunity to make it delightful or not. And if they care, you'll feel it in the product. And that's the same with anyone else who engages with your um, staff. And you don't want the same level of turnover in that part of your business because you want deep knowledge, deep pride, history. The, the idea that you come back to a shop, oh, same person's still there. Oh, God, I remember. Yeah, you were here three years ago. Oh, great. You know, that's lovely. And that, that makes you feel good about the brand and the product because there's a little bit of continuity. But if in a different part of your business, which is about software or innovation, or and you're bringing in new ideas, well, that makes sense. So, but it, you know, so it, it, you're. I completely agree. But the world is so set in a certain way. As soon as you start being different in business, everybody questions you and they think you're odd. It's it's, and it is a bit frustrating. And of course, as you grow the business and you recruit more people new people turn up and they've all been learning all their philosophy from the other businesses. And they go, what are you doing this for? This is you know, so silly. You, you could save a load of money by doing it like this. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how we do it. You know, it's, it's so trying to keep the thing on the straight and narrow and keep a sense of just being, just caring and being, and not being so obsessed with short-term profit and just allowing care and, you know, looking after the customer and it will come good. Well, I just have to say that I once heard uh, the saying that said, caring is a competitive advantage. I love that. It's just so simple. Caring is your competitive advantage. Brilliant. Now, um, from failed to first, as in failed at school, your words, failed at school to first at university. You see what I did there. Uh, you, you're not shy of failure. So um, everyone listening in will be dealing with some level of failure at any given point in time. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the, the benefits of some of the failures you've had, what you've learned from those times when it didn't all go perfectly? Funny enough, I mean, I don't like failing, but I'm failing all the time, if that makes sense. So, um, but what, 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 when I look back at, at Brompton, it's sort of been a sort of continuum of failure. I mean, we're, you know, uh, I mean, I, I could, if we had more time, I could give you probably about six from the last week. Um, we had one came in yesterday. I'm like, you must be joking. Oh, my God. We ended up getting some technical paperwork wrong for Singapore. And now, you know, we've got the Singapore. They're very strict on regulation. And, and, and now we've got to go into an interview. And I'm like, oh what, how did we get that wrong? It was a completely innocent mistake. It was like, oh no, it's such a bore. Um, but, but actually the big stuff, you know, when I get knocked down, I don't give up. So actually most things we've got there eventually. It might've taken twice as long. It, it might've uh, uh, cost more. It might've been a bit more painful, but we bloody well get there. So it's like tripping up, trying to mountain, you know, falling back, falling down, tripping up, get up a bit more, back down. But eventually we get there. So, and, you know, I have been very, very fortunate just in my upbringing 
You know, I was brought, I popped out with a silver spoon in my mouth in a very, very, very privileged um, life. And that comes with responsibility. If you pop out and you're the lucky bloody bugger who happens to appear on planet Earth, you know, in a nice home with a nice family, you know, where you're not having to worry about lots of things that other people have to worry about, then you have a responsibility to contribute. You know, that comes with responsibility. And that privilege has a responsibility because it's just the way it is. So that the failure is offset by the responsibility. So I can't not keep going because I have a responsibility to keep to do stuff. You know, we're here for a short period of time and we've got some big problems in the world. And you can't expect somebody, there are millions of people in the world who don't have the bandwidth to deal with the world's problems. They're struggling to look after their families. They're struggling to get by. They do not have a responsibility because they're just trying to get by. And there are millions of them. We in the West, and particularly leaders and people who've, who've had education and, and have the means, we are the ones that need to take responsibility to fix the world's problems. Because if we, the privileged, don't give a shit, we're fucked. You know? So we have to get stuck in. We have to contribute. We have to come up with solutions. We have to inspire people. We have to take risk and, and solve these problems because there are some big ones coming. And, and we can't sit by and let them, you know, affect us. Well, I have never heard someone in your position talk like this before, honestly. And it's, it's so open, honest, and actually, quite frankly, just absolutely true. And, and, you know, I just, I'm kind of speechless, to be honest, on that, because it really is. It's, it's, it's super inspiring around, around it. And, you know, the thing is, and, and you talked about Silver Spoon, what's interesting is that it's almost like it's very easy for people to then just judge and write you off and go, well, you know, that's it. But it's so different. The reality on the ground, the fact that you started actually on with bikes on there from the ground and working your way through. And I think it's given you an ability to understand people like no other. And I just want to understand, oh, I want to ask, where does that come from? You know, that, that, that passion for people in all circumstances of life, your sense of adventure in the Amazon and all of this stuff. Where's that, where's that originated from? Because I've not seen it before. I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. I've, I just sort of gone on. It's life experience. You just pick these things up as you go along. But I think travel and seeing, um, getting a perspective on where you sit in the world, because when yeah, I'm very fortunate, I live in an extraordinarily rarefied part of the UK, never mind part of the world, Marlow Henley, you know, southeast of England. I was brought up in Yorkshire. But um, you can be in your bubble and all you can see is because people, they, they, they position themselves against their neighbours. It doesn't matter whether you're in the slums of Mumbai or you're whether in the rarefied atmosphere of between Marlow and Hen. you're looking over your fence and looking at your neighbours. And, and if you're a little bit better than them, you feel happy. It's all relative. But when you're spoiled and fortunate, that's not healthy because all you're doing is comparing yourself to other people who are spoiled and fortunate. You need to get out and see what's going on in the world as a whole. And so the international adventure, 
I traveled a lot. I've always been intrigued by different cultures and different people. And when I joined Brompton, I traveled a lot. I mean, and I pushed for export, improving our distribution, opening up in Thailand, Malaysia, China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, going into Chile, Argentina, and really pushing at a time when people were telling me we shouldn't be doing that because we can't supply enough bikes to the UK. I said, no, 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 no. We've got to develop these new markets so that we'll never be able to supply enough to the UK and we'll keep having demand. And London is so attractive because it's so multicultural. It's so, it, there is no one-dimensional London. It's just a rich just mishmash of interesting people with interesting stories and different perspectives. And guess what? That makes the company dynamic, multinational, global, and it drives an impatience for being just British. We've got to roll out and have a bigger impact because we live on this little blue dot. Mm. Um, such interesting perspective. And I think probably that travel has given you a unique perspective. Uh, well, we, we could have gone on forever, but I think we're getting towards the end, perhaps for the last question. Um, which is going to leave so many things unanswered, not least I'm intrigued about what really happened in Amazon. In the Amazon. But anyway, there's been so much depth and texture to this conversation. Um, the last question we'd leave you with is, uh, from everything you've learned, what advice would you give to younger people? It doesn't matter whether, whether they're in marketing or anything. You know, as young people are trying to plot their way in the world, what advice would you give them? I mean, I now have children who were teenagers. So I'm trying to give them advice. Of course, they're not listening to a word I say because I'm their father. Um, but I see in my staff who are joining and in my children that they are taking life too seriously. They are being fed a one-dimensional, academic, you must sort of it's the most important thing in the world line from somewhere. I don't know where it comes from because it certainly doesn't come from us. Life is short. One-dimensional children, even young adults who follow the same path as everyone else, are flipping boring and not going to change the world. We need people to follow their heart, particularly when they're young. They need to take risk. They need to not care about the work experience. They need to not care about doing the job that everyone thinks is the right job because it ticks all the boxes. They need to do weird stuff. They need to get out there and and, and be innovators. And by being an innovator, you don't follow the crowd. When everyone goes left, you go right. When everyone goes into the city, you, you go to, you know, Lagos. You know, you've got to follow your real genuine passion and, and, and find out who you are. And then that gives you a confidence to talk in a way that is different and bring different ideas. And those different perspectives and that different confidence is what we need to solve these problems that we will face coming down the track. Well, I tell you, it's just been such a, a delight and pleasure, um, you know, for, to, to, to have had this conversation. Um, to sum up for me, I mean, it's it's been an emotional roller coaster. but actually as talking to you as a CEO of one of the most iconic brands and organizations that, that have come out of Britain PLC, it's just amazing to hear how different you view the world to some of the other CEOs that we've had on the show in the past. It's refreshing. And I think to the extent of maybe there's, there's something in the, the organization structure, the way it is, the way that you guys keep it that way, that makes it different. The culture that you've embodied, 
um, in the in in the organization. Um, the fact that it's addictive in the product and proposition and the way that you've got, you know, you've positioned uh, your vision to change the way people live in cities. Um, all these things just, just make it so unique. And it's just been such a privilege, genuinely, to have being able to speak to you this morning. I'm also going to pass over to Mark for, for his closing remarks. But from the bottom of my heart, genuinely, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is the reason Richie and I do the show. You know, very selfishly, we get to talk to amazing people and get energised. So there we go, the secret's out. But no, I, I, I love the way you've talked about imperfection uh, and the, the difference between uh, taking things seriously versus being serious. So um, the combination of being successful but having fun, I think, has been uh, very, very refreshing. Um, you talked a bit about no egos, being the humble underdog. And I think that shines through. And when Christina said, you know, there's enthusiasm, bonkersness, energy, connection, I think she was actually spot on. Um, we, we, we all found Candy T uh, for some of the ways that he shaped you. And we'll make sure that happens. I, I like your perspective on anti-marketing. My spin is really you actually were just talking about sensible marketing um, as distinct from people who have sort of started to believe their own hype. Um, but uh, failure, don't give up take responsibility, um, and then to sum it all up, life is short, change the world, find out who you are. Great advice. It's been a real pleasure, Will. Thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, we wish you well with your continued success with Brompton. Thank you, guys. It's been my pleasure.